Hi, I'm Graham McLennan, and today I'm talking to a fellow podcaster who, as luck would have it, is also a fellow food enthusiast. She's an anthropologist, too. Let's get started. Talking to chefs, and sometimes lawyers, but always to people who love food. You're listening to the Chef Demoni Podcast. Here's your host, Graham McLennan. Welcome back to the Chef Demoni Podcast, and thanks very much for joining me. And if you're new to the show, welcome to Chef Demoni. This is a podcast that's about stories, really. It's about real-life stories from people who love food and restaurants and hospitality. And today, I'm delighted to share with you an interview with somebody who loves food, but who also thinks really deeply about it. Somebody who thinks about how food connects to other concepts like culture and identity. My guest today is Sarah Dugnan, and we're going to get to my talk with Sarah in just a few minutes. Before that, a tiny bit of housekeeping just to keep you up to date with what's going on with the show. I'm so happy that this week I was able to connect with Jesse Sheehan, and my interview with Jesse will be coming up on a full episode soon. Jesse is a former lawyer who is now a full-time baker and recipe developer and cookbook author. Jesse puts out really amazing content for what she calls easy peasy sweets, and I was really, really happy to talk to her, even though it meant a very early interview time from Vancouver to connect with Jesse in Connecticut. I've been loving Jesse's book. It's called The Vintage Baker, and she and I talked about her writing, about her transition from law to baking. Uh, we talked about social media and lots more. So look for that in the coming weeks on Cheftimony. Today, though, today my guest, as I say, is Sarah Dugnan, and I met Sarah virtually, as we do these days. Originally, that was through Instagram. Sarah is a PhD candidate in anthropology at McMaster University, and at McMaster, she studies the anthropology of health. But Sarah is also a food lover, and she's got some history working in the restaurant industry. And despite her interest in food, Sarah's academic work tends to focus more on big-picture health. So... Like many of the food lovers I know, Sarah started a passion project, and hers is the AnthroDish podcast. It's one that I highly recommend you check out. Give it a listen. Sarah has great guests, and the conversations are always insightful and intelligent. On AnthroDish, Sarah and her guests explore connections between food, culture, and identity through an anthropological lens. Here's a little bit from Sarah's website that I think sums it all up really well. My goal on this podcast, says Sarah, is to explore the many ways that food relates to our cultures and subcultures, as well as our personal or community identities. I want to dig deep and explore how food cultures are maintaining age-old traditions, how new undercurrents in food cultures emerge, and how foodways influence our world broadly, but also how they occupy space in everyday lives. So to me, that makes for a fascinating podcast. And today, I'm delighted to share some of Sarah's thoughts with you here on Cheftimony. All right, that's enough from me and this introduction. Let's go now. Here's my talk with Sarah Dugnan of the Answer Dish podcast. Sarah Dugnan, thank you very much for joining me, uh, remotely, of course, as we all must these days, but between British Columbia and Ontario, thanks for being on Cheftimony. Thanks for having me on. I'm really excited to connect and chat more with you. This is great. Yeah, because we've, uh, I think, discovered each other through Instagram. Yeah, definitely want to get your views on the current situation. But before we get there, maybe tell my listeners a little bit, please, about your background, because you're an anthropologist, doing currently in PhD studies, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
and uh, but in I guess conjunction with your with your academic studies, you produce and host uh, a great podcast called Anthrodish. So please tell us about all of that, your academic work and how Anthrodish overlaps with it. Sure. Yeah. So. Um... Yes, I'm currently doing my PhD at McMaster University in anthropology of health. Um, So sometimes that means that I'm called a medical anthropologist. Sometimes it doesn't. It just depends on who you're speaking with, um, mostly. But my work really revolves around how health and wellness connect with um, water security and food security. I work particularly with Indigenous communities looking at these issues, and and we kind of co-create our research together. And to kind of connect with that, um, I've worked in the food industry for a number of years, particularly throughout my master's degree to kind of supplement that. And then when I was starting my PhD as well. And so the desire to explore food a little bit differently through restaurant culture was so intriguing to me coming into the food world that way. So then I think it was probably, I guess it was two years ago, uh, Anthrodish kind of started to come about because I needed to get better at doing interviews for my PhD work. Um, So I decided to interview a lot of my friends who worked in the restaurant industry just to get a better sense of like how to ask questions and, you know, create spaces of conversation where people are excited to give you more than yes, no's. (laughs) And so, yeah, so Anthrodish came about that way. And the show itself explores the connections between our foods, our identities and our cultures. But I leave that pretty broad broadly because it can be interpreted in so many different ways. Sure. Can you tell us a bit more about your food industry experience? Yeah, so I worked front of house. So I don't have any kitchen experience at all, but I worked front of house for I think it was about 5 or 6 years at different restaurants in Toronto. And so that was a time it was really fascinating to me because I was at that point like pretty food insecure and pretty low income myself, but I was working um, around Young and Eglinton, which is a fairly well-off portion of Toronto. So we were experiencing a lot of us working there, you know, not necessarily being able to afford a lot of the foods that we were serving if we had to pay full price and really coming into contact with wealth uh, in a, and luxury in a way that I had never before through, you know, especially I had worked at a vegan restaurant. So it was a lot of, you know, detoxes and cleanses and things like that around juicing. So it was just this really bizarre kind of cultural moment for me as a newcomer to Toronto working in that food scene at that point. Right. It's interesting, isn't it? In I think in just about every service industry, certainly true in the in the hospitality world, that most and I worked in it myself and at the time yeah I remember thinking that um, I can't really afford to (laughs) have the meals that I'm preparing and serving which was often okay because we would have staff meal before or snacks after which would be in many ways better just because of that sense of community among the staff but I can tell you the same applies in my other line of work with uh, with lawyers. It's an oft-repeated refrain among lawyers that they can't afford to hire themselves. <laughs> um, so I'm not not sure where that ends. But maybe talk a little bit about the exploring the culture. What what did you find or what did you observe within restaurant culture at, from those early days and how people identified with either being a server, being a guest. Did you bridge that gap at all and and talk to people on either side? Yeah, it was like, for me, it was kind of a perfect kind of ethnographic playground because <laughs> in some ways I got to like show up to work and I love serving. I love being able to talk with folks um, and get to know them. And so it was, you know, obviously there were stressful periods, but it was fun kind of seeing both sides of it and, and exploring it in a way that you wouldn't normally get access to. So for me, I think what was the most fascinating is that I've always been really intrigued by how we define health. So what kind of standards do we have 
around what health means. Um, how does food factor into our understandings of health? And particularly in the Western contexts, um, because I was working at a, at a place where there were a lot of more well-off folks, what wellness meant for them was, you know, very different than what wellness means um, for other folks. And so, you know, the, the issues around access to foods and what foods were um, constituted as healthy and how people understood that was was kind of bizarre to me. I think one of the big things was that was around the time that the juicing juicing trends kind of really kicked off in Toronto. Uh, so there were a lot of um, people coming into the restaurant who were interested in learning about this and were really seeking server knowledge as like their go-to for, for wellness. And working as a server, you know, you understand what your restaurant is serving, but you don't necessarily know like what health properties does celery have. And so it, it kind of entered this realm of health that I didn't really know existed until that point and really made me see the the wellness culture that we're experiencing right now it was kind of like as that was starting to grow up of you know what um you know wellness is sometimes understood as kind of like health and diet the way that it was in the early 2000s but with this kind of extra spiritual lens that is starting to develop within it and it's you know kind of different depending on where you go sure absolutely did you find that uh, i'm i'm always sort of intrigued by the notion of expertise and how that can land on people differently and at different times. And did you find that in, um, did you find a connection there between expertise and the, the wellness inquiries from customers? And I guess what I'm thinking is, it surprised me when I first started dabbling in cooking, although I guess it shouldn't have, that when you have a chef's jacket on and you're plating food, people assume probably fairly that you're the expert, even though I felt, oh my goodness, I'm brand new to this. I don't know what I'm doing. I've got full imposter syndrome here. <laughs> How did you find that as a server connecting with people who were there, not just for a meal, but coming in with specific wellness goals or ideas? Um, it was very challenging, to be honest, because I think for me, you know, I have had this background in education around nutrition. Um, so I've been fortunate enough to kind of understand nutritional properties of food a little bit more deeply than some of the other servers. I think all of us had kind of gravitated towards working at that one particular restaurant because of the fact that it was vegan vegetarian. So you kind of come in with already an interest in food that's a little bit more elevated, I think, than you know folks that aren't choosing a plant-based diet. And so there was that element of experiential knowledge, but being perceived as an expert when you're serving food and not actually preparing it is is really strange to me. And, you know, I wasn't the person that was in the kitchen preparing these meals. I don't know what, you know, obviously you have a sense of what's being made, but you don't understand the processes fully. So it's kind of like this game of broken telephone between the person that created the recipes, the uh, the kitchen staff that's preparing that, and then the server sharing that with the guest who wants this like full experience. Sure. What did you notice, Sarah, if anything, about different concepts of wellness and nutrition depending on somebody's position, uh, socioeconomic, I guess, most broadly in society? Does it resonate for people differently? And what does it mean for people? Yeah, I think it does. Um, I think for, you know, for the sort of people that I was encountering on a day to day basis there, wellness was... Um, something that they could explore a little bit more freely because they had the time, the space, and the finances to explore different foods, um, particularly more expensive foods, and kind of explore what that means relative to their own health. For a lot of folks, you know, I work with a lot of undergraduate students who are at a, a much different level of food security as well. 
And so just wrapping up conversations with them this past semester, um, how they see wellness is much more rooted in family. And so what their family at the household level can you know, afford and access, what meals they can make together if they actually have time to spend together to make meals. So you kind of see... And, you know, this kind of, again, varies from place to place. But um, from what I've seen is it's kind of for those of higher socioeconomic status, particularly in the Ontario or Toronto setting, it's more individually focused. Whereas with lower income, it's about, you know, how can we all pitch in together to, to feed this household in a way that, you know, we're all kind of nourished in one way or another. Right. Okay. And I want to come in a few minutes to perhaps some changing norms, given what we're all going through now with COVID-19. Yeah. But maybe as a background to that, you could tell us a little bit about a recent episode of yours. I think it was 71, where you and your guests, Jessica, talked about uh, the role of food in disease spread in the past. So maybe just give us a bit of a background on that episode and and any parallels you might be drawing between human experiences in the past and what we're all starting to deal with now. Ooh, okay. Um, so I'll start by saying that I will try my best to, uh, you know, give an accurate depiction of what Jessica was talking about, but she's the, she's the expert on the food and disease elements. Um, so she was, she's someone who works with ancient DNA in particular and, and traces diseases through time looking at looking at genetics and looking at skeletal remains um, because you can kind of get the story of health and disease by looking at skeletal remains in the past and kind of connecting that to what you're seeing at archaeological sites or, or historical texts. You can kind of start to piece it together. But a lot of the past history of disease spread and, and similar to what we're seeing now is that there's this transmission between animals and humans because we have this really unique relationship with animals, particularly with livestock. So you see a lot of disease being transmitted through sheep, goats, cattle. Poultry is another big one, fishing in some, in some senses. She had been looking particularly at this one disease called brucellosis that was something that you see in farming communities, and it's usually transmitted through consumption of milk. So if you're working in a dairying community um, with goats or with cattle, you know, animals can have brucellosis and transmit it through their milk. Um, and quite often in this one instance that she was looking at, it was, you know, farmers would drink the milk unpasteurized because they had access to it. Um, and so they would be contracting the disease through that. But that one I think was interesting because there was no because it was such a chronic disease, they didn't necessarily recognize that they were feeling it. So you didn't see the full impact the way that you're seeing with with our current situation as well. What do you see parallels between that and what we're starting to go through now, or is it still too early to say? Um, yeah, I mean, taking kind of the long historical approach, I think a lot of anthropologists. Um, I remember I took a infectious disease course back in my undergrad, so it would have been about eight or eight or nine years ago. And they were already, you know, a lot of our techs, a lot of our professors were already preparing for, you know, whatever sort of zoonotic disease was transmitted from an animal to a human at that point. And so this is something that we've kind of always been expecting. And I think, you know, obviously with what we're seeing right now, there's still not a consensus on how this disease started. I know there's a lot of issue with with people kind of assuming that it happened in the wet market in Wuhan and that that meant that people were consuming this food. But quite often what we're seeing is, is um, disease spreading, not necessarily from ingesting an animal, but from, um, you know, pushing into areas, pushing into environments where animals live that we don't come into contact a lot with and invading that environment, 
contacting these animals and then contracting disease through that. So with deforestation or, or um, things like that, you're going to see more diseases coming up because those are animals that we don't have a very long relationship with. Um, we're not used to them. And so we're not really used to the sorts of diseases that they might carry and vice versa. They might not be used to what diseases we're coming with. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to come to what we might do or how systems might change to hopefully prevent future outbreaks of, of whatever it might be. But coming back to the present moment, and I'm curious for your views as an anthropologist on uh, the way the COVID-19 pandemic is landing for different groups. And and to put some specificity around that, I interviewed a couple of weeks ago, Chef Jenny Dorsey, who's in Los Angeles. Uh, she's Asian American. And she was saying one of the impacts is that sometimes she feels that she personally is being blamed for this, right? Because there's a, this notion that this disease came from China. And I guess as humans, we like to assign blame. So are you noticing anything in that realm? I'm curious for your views as an anthropologist as to what you're viewing in society and our reactions to this pandemic. Yeah, I definitely have been watching kind of with interest and almost horror in some senses because it's playing out what we've seen before in different in different time periods. Obviously, it's novel for us, but um, humanity has a long history of, of blaming certain areas for the spread of a disease or, or quite often naming diseases after, you know, countries in, in which it started. Um, you know, Spanish flu is one of them. And I think with, with a lot of disease, it quite often comes back to marginalized groups getting blamed for it. And in some instances, like for me, it just kind of feels like it's an excuse to continue marginalizing and continue oppressing. So, you know, it is really troubling, particularly around, you know, rich cuisines of um, different Chinese communities being kind of further stigmatized. I know in Toronto, we saw that starting to happen back in 2003, 2004 with the SARS outbreak. And that sure. really hit Chinatown very, very hard um, for many years. And so I think it's, there's this really big connection between how our own society kind of connects to food and, and mystifies other cultures' connections with food that plays into this historical and contemporary kind of blaming of, of certain places for diseases. So it's this really unique kind of messy puddle of, um, you know, food stigma and, uh, and racism kind of coming into play through disease as well. Yeah. Is it the fact that, or in part, the fact that we don't have enough answers yet? It seems to me that people, it seems to me that a lot of this, particularly the racist reactions are at root, probably fear-based and it's kind of a human reaction to reach out and latch onto an easy answer. And if you're directing your, uh, if you're directing your fear as anger or hatred towards somebody, presumably that's some kind of a coping mechanism. Not a great one, but I wonder if that's what's at play here. Yeah, I do too. I think because it's been such a rapid spread of the disease for a lot of us. You know, I was talking to a lot of folks where. They can't believe it's only been 10 days or, or two weeks, you know, since they last saw family members because it feels like a lifetime. And so obviously panic and fear set in. And I think that, you know, I've had a lot of conversations with folks online, um, you know, with especially with a lot of friends who don't necessarily come into it with the same sort of um, knowledge sources or expertise. And, and they're posting really surprisingly harmful and, and racist kind of memes or things like that perpetuating it. And I think it really comes to you know, particularly with with Chinese culture, a, a huge lack of understanding of what um, what food means to them and what sorts of 
animals they they eat versus what animals we eat. So it kind of sets up this space where, unfortunately, people feel very comfortable othering and furthering that blame through othering. Despite, you know, if you think about in the United States in the past few years, we've seen a lot more uh, increased incidences of salmonella or listeria outbreaks or E. coli, and, and that's through food sources as well without that same stigma. So I think it's interesting to look at why we're blaming certain cultures despite also having, you know, faulty food systems of our own. That's a really interesting point, yeah, that you that you raise, that E. coli, listeria, they just came and went without any assignment of blame, seemingly. Yeah, and I think it's, you know, again, because we live within this North American food system, we're dependent on North American farmers, you don't want to go pushing those buttons. But when it's someone that's so distanced from you and you don't have that, you know, cultural knowledge or you're not familiar and you're you're uncomfortable kind of having those discussions, um, it becomes a lot easier, I think, for folks to to resort to fear and panic and, and harmful ideology. Mm-hmm. Do you think, Sarah, that we're going to see changes, and these changes are, are starting to happen already in small ways, but do you think we'll see changes to the food system more broadly? And I'll give some context for that question. I spoke recently to uh, a woman, Sonia Strobel, who's the CEO of a, a CSF, a community-supported fishery here in BC. And she was saying that, you know, they really started the business as a way to ensure that fishing families could be paid living wages for their for their work, but also to address this question uh, or this issue where I think the numbers are 80% of the seafood that is produced, that is caught in Canada, is exported. And 90% of the seafood that we as Canadians consume is imported. And so she thought, that's crazy. Let's find a way where we can uh, support local fisheries to bring product to the local market. And in doing that, interestingly, she said, we seem to have created a business model that is well suited to this pandemic, which is to say they're sourcing food locally, they're flash freezing it, boxing it up, and then taking it to uh, pickup locations across the country where people can safely pick it up. Certainly that wasn't in their minds when they were coming up with this model, but she did say that this pandemic seems to be showing the cracks in globalization and the commoditization of foods, right? Where everything is shipped around the globe really based on what the cheapest supply chain is and the highest profit margin is. Anyway, that's a long rambling non-question, but the, <laughs> the question is, do you think we will, as a result of this COVID-19 outbreak, see more changes perhaps like that to CSAs, CSFs in our own uh, food systems? Yeah, I, I think it's so fascinating. And I'm really kind of digging into a lot of um, food economist literature lately, just to kind of get a better sense of that myself. But I think on the surface level, I think there's a lot more conversation, particularly in media about our food system in Canada, um, which, you know, we never really got before we did, we didn't really get that perspective of what what our food system was, who who operates within our food system, who controls it. I was reading uh, last week that uh, Canada is a net exporter. And so they export about 70% of their food. Um, the only thing that we really lack is, is fruit and vegetable because of certain climates. And so, you know, when you start to look at that, as you said, it, it really bodes well for kind of thinking more regionally going forward. And I think a lot of people are kind of, you know, there are a lot of um, food academics right now that are working on food policy going forward. So those emails have been kind of heating up in the past few days. Um, (laughs) In the anthropological crowd. Yeah. (laughs) And so I think kind of 
for so long, especially with the climate crisis, there have been a lot of academics who have been really, and, and indigenous um, communities who have been really advocating for working more regionally within our food systems and valuing what we can grow and not having to rely on global imports. Um, so I think this might be one of those places where we can finally start to see that and see how, you know, see how much, especially in Ontario, um, as that's, you know, where I live and where I kind of understand it more, we have so much available to us. We're able to grow, especially with the climate, unfortunately getting warmer, we're able to grow a lot more here. And so that bodes well for building more resilient, locally based solutions that I think we're going to have to really start to rely on because this isn't a short term situation. This will probably go on for a year or two. So, so thinking about those long term situations and starting to fix the cracks that we're seeing now, um, I think bodes well. And I think there's certainly a, an increased public interest in where their food is coming from that we haven't seen, you know, to date. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Do you think this will? prompt people to think more about the real cost of food because one of the challenges and this comes back to socioeconomic factors is that sure it's all well and good to say please buy the local fresh organic kale but that's a lot more expensive than at least than what people have been conditioned to think food should cost but i think back to an interview with a vancouver chef where he said, you know, I'm tired of seeing people at farmer's markets who are wearing a $200 Canucks jersey and they're sipping on a $5 latte and they're complaining about $3 kale. So do you think this crisis, looking for silver linings, do you think this might start to shift attitudes about what the real cost of food is? I'm hopeful of that. Um, I also, I grew up in a small town that was farming based and then moved to Toronto. So the Toronto food culture is very different from, you know, growing up around farmers and, and appreciating food in different senses. So there are parts of me that, you know, when I look at what people are buying in the grocery store, I still see that disconnect between between people and their kitchens, especially within like the condo, condoville that I live in. You know, a lot of folks really... I think this is the first time for many people where they're actually having to cook meals for themselves and rely on food in a different way or think about food, you know, think about food saving and, and reducing food waste. So I think that's kind of the start of it, right? Like that's when you start to appreciate that you have to stretch your food a little bit more. You start to think about the cost versus the value of it. And I'm hopeful that that'll kind of continue. You know, I see a lot of grassroots movements around like sharing sourdough starters or Buches, gobies, and things like that that are rising. And I think that's great because it promotes working within food systems outside of capitalism. So I'm curious to see where that goes. If it, you know, we have more community gardens, if we start to grow food and share it in different ways, um, I think that's also an interesting kind of component that might start to shift. Sure. <laughs> it was funny. I was talking to a colleague of mine. And uh, he's roughly my age, which is to say far older than you. Let's just say middle-aged, roughly. And uh, he was saying, he said, you know, I don't want to say I'm enjoying this exactly, but he said, in a way, it's neat. It's like, he said, it reminds me of the way we lived in the 70s, which is mm -hmm. to say we were cooking all our meals at home. We're going out for walks in the evenings and, and connecting with neighbors at a you know socially responsible distance. Yeah. And even found a channel that had uh, Love Boat repeats. So he was <laughs> solidly back in back in his childhood. But I think that is something that's uh, that is a silver lining. And I'd love your thoughts on this: on what can happen when people do start spending more time 
in kitchens together again because we're in small groups at home now by and large and seems to me there is some magic in not just breaking bread together but preparing it together yeah absolutely i think so too and i think um you know i've been really kind of contemplating what our identities mean to us when our jobs get stripped away and so for a lot of people especially in the food industry you know there a lot of front of house and back of house got laid off and so they're now you know, my partner included, coming to terms with who they want to be without that job. And so I think the kitchen offers this space, particularly because so much of what we're doing right now is shifting to digital spaces. The kitchen is that, you know, a place where we can be present. And quite often we can't be present, especially, you know, even if we can get outside a little bit more with the pandemic, I think having that ability to just really connect with food and slow things down and, and not necessarily worry about all the horrible things that are going on around us, um, that really offers us a place to connect at a community level and really, again, start to, I think for a lot of folks, understand where they come from, what foods they come from, and how they can gather together at the table in ways that they didn't before. I think especially as people kind of experiment with bread making and things like that, for a lot of Westerners, that's, you know, the first time they've made bread in their lives. But that's that comes from a very old tradition of, of being within farming cultures. So I think it's the first step in exploring that. And I think that, you know, I always say coming together at the table through food is the best way to have conversations that are sometimes a little bit heavier because food kind of offers that that buffer because everyone needs to eat. But if you're all around the table and all eating, you can kind of have conversations that otherwise might be pretty polarizing. Yeah, I agree. And and not only at the table, but while you're stirring the sauce, yeah. while you're... Just away from the hot oil, I feel. That's... <laughs> yeah, yes, agreed. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, are you seeing any bright sights, uh, let's say, in the Toronto area uh, within the hospitality industry? We've, in Vancouver, we're seeing some really nice initiatives, everything from uh, one restaurant. I, I interviewed one of the partners recently that's converted their staff meal initiative from just being for serving staff before uh, before service to trying to feed the community at large. And then there are groups springing up where uh, you can make donations to help uh, restaurant employees who, who have been laid off. So there is this sense of the community rallying which is great to see. I don't think it's enough in the long term. We need to see more systemic changes, I think. But uh, what are you seeing in Toronto uh, on the bright side of the hospitality industry? Um, so on the bright side, you know, I'm not super familiar with a lot of initiatives going on in Toronto right now around that. Um, but the one that does come to mind that's like constantly kind of impressing me and giving me inspiration on the day to day is um, through Maisel Tortiera. So they used to be a restaurant and now they've shifted to mostly just being a, a tortilla house. And the owner of that is also the farmer. So he grows the corn and then brings it to the restaurant, um, makes the tortillas from by hand using indigenous seed. And now he's out on his bike every day, dropping off like these beautiful fresh tortillas to anyone that is in need of them. And I think those sorts of movements are, you know, really kind of that's taking off in Toronto a lot. I'm seeing a lot of restaurants kind of being able to still provide food, but at a distance. I know there's Primrose Bagel is another one that is still offering a lot of kind of essential food items. Um, and recently they did um, like a Passover special. So for folks that you know weren't able to make foods um, specific to Passover, they offered these meals in pre-order. And so I think those sorts of things are still kind of helping staff um, in some ways. And also, again, really 
highlighting what foods are essential and why. And I think kind of that spiritual element to it was really interesting that I saw. But those are the only ones that I can really think of right now off the top of my head. Right. No, they they sound great. Um, what do you think, Sarah, needs to change uh, if we can talk about the structure of the hospitality industry, the restaurant industry? Because I think what's being revealed here to a broader community is something that we who have worked in the industry have known for a long time, which is it really operates on this razor's edge of profitability and, and sustainability. And I don't think the public at large realized, and, and hopefully some are realizing now, that you know restaurants don't even have a buffer of payroll or of rent for a month. So when something like this hits, it it exposes the fragility, I think, of that business as a whole. So one, uh, again, I'm coming back to a, an earlier talk I had with Chef Jenny Dorsey, and one of her thoughts was that the companies, the bigger companies in the space need to be leaders in terms of paying living wages to employees uh, because the small independent restaurants can't do it on their own. Uh, if they raise their prices to a point that allows them to do that, they'll go out of business because they're, uh, you know, they're going to be, uh, their competitors are going to be more cheaply priced. Anyway, that was one idea that, you know, bigger companies can lead the charge on wages. Do you see any opportunities here for structural change in the industry, or at least things that we could be thinking about as hospitality tries to move forward after this pandemic ends? Um, I think, you know, I've been thinking about it and not having the like economic knowledge to to make any, you know, big suggestions. One thing that I've been thinking a lot about is, um, you know, for the city of Toronto, we have Mayor John Tory, who kind of is, is speaking an awful lot to what is and isn't essential right now. And I think that we're really seeing Toronto's culture is, is deeply food-based and deeply restaurant-based. Um, so not having the ability to explore restaurants in the same way is taking a toll on, you know, how we kind of view Toronto, how we connect with it. So I think having, I think if government and public have this deeper appreciation for what they're missing without restaurant culture, that might lead itself to, you know, different funding efforts and things like that, that might support these smaller businesses, because we really, you know, those are the roots of, of what makes Toronto special is that we have all these wonderful multicultural restaurants, but, you know, they might not be able to stay open and, and likely for a lot of the smaller ones aren't going to be able to sustain being closed for more than a couple months. So I think having some forms of relief on the citywide level, appreciating the the cultural nourishment that we're getting out of that would be important. But that's, yeah, in terms of deeper kind of structural shifts, I'm not as familiar with good suggestions for that. No, no, fair enough. And I, I, I don't, goodness knows, I don't have a, a solution <laughs> either. But I think your point is a really good one that it's that hopefully people are really waking up to what is gone mm-hmm. when restaurants have to step back from what we've had. I remember hearing years ago through a friend in the business, she worked front of house at Burdock and Co, where I was at the time working back of house. And she was saying that in London, some friends of hers in the art community were actually getting grants to open bakeries and they were pitching them as art projects, which in many ways, at first I thought, well, that sounds crazy. But then the more I thought about it, I thought, no, these you know, people who are cooking at high levels really are producing art. So maybe, hopefully, this one additional silver lining will be more appreciation for what the culinary industry is doing for us, for our society generally? Yeah, I think so. And I think, you know, I saw it floating around on social media a lot the past week of, you know, remember what what you used in this time to cope was art. So music, TV shows, things like that. You know, this is what we're all relying on in terms of 
you know, coping through the hard days or, or connecting in some way or another. And I think restaurants are an extension of that. You know, that's a big part of culture. And especially in, in major urban spheres and in small towns too, having, having restaurants kind of speaks to the landscape and the social landscape that we have. It brings a lot of us together. Uh, we're also seeing a lot of people, you know, have, again, because they have to kind of rely on their kitchen in a new way, I hope that allows them to see how much they were able to get from the restaurant industry before this all closed. I know especially like Torontonian brunch is a huge, huge thing. So I, I hope that that appreciation of all the complexities of restaurant culture are kind of starting to be understood by the public in a different manner. In a different way. Yeah, I love that thought. And I think we're seeing real changes already. The one that really springs to mind is how frontline grocery store employees are being viewed properly as, you know, first responders, as heroes in this crisis, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> yeah. And that one, I think, is interesting, too, um, the conversation around, like, pushing for a sustainable wage for them. I think someone had done the math about, like, how much you get for CERB um, monthly and how you'd have to work over 30 hours a week at a grocery store to make roughly what you get from the emergency funds. So again, I think that speaks to particularly in Ontario politics. We were having a lot of issues with increasing minimum wage and and the kind of universal income project was tabled in Hamilton recently to a lot of distress for people. So perhaps this will get the conversation going about, you know, the importance of universal income and how that can kind of support those that return to restaurant that aren't, you know, that are that are working front of house or back of house and, and usually working for minimum wage. Right, right. Yeah. Well, fingers crossed yeah. that um, minds will open and, and things will change. Mm-hmm. Well, just a couple more questions, Sarah, and then I'll let you get on with your long weekend. But <laughs> uh, let's talk about fun food projects. Anything particular in mind for your long weekend and, and your kitchen plans? Um, So I guess in terms of fun food projects, I'm still navigating the sourdough starter land. Um, My apartment is very cold, so it's been a very slow process. And then we're going to, I've got a four-year-old, so we're going to make some Easter bunny mini egg cookies. And that's kind of the big highlight of the weekend for us over here. (laughs) I love it. That sounds great. (laughs) Sounds like a wonderful weekend. Well, listen, Sarah, thank you so much for joining me. Where, I will put links, but where is or are the best places for my listeners to find you and AnthroDish? Sure. Um, so usually Instagram is kind of my main go-to. So at Instagram, I'm at AnthroDish Podcast. Um, and then my website is AnthroDish.com as well. And that's kind of the main hub for everything going on over here. Terrific. Well, Sarah, thank you again for being on Chefdemony. I really appreciate you taking the time. I'm, I'm glad we finally got to speak. Likewise. Yeah. Thank you for having me. It was exciting to move from an Instagram connection to a, to a virtual discussion like this. <laughs> to a virtual discussion. Absolutely. <laughs> Thanks so much, Sarah, for joining me and for sharing your thoughts. Thanks, too, for producing Anthrodish. As I said in the intro, it's a podcast that I recommend everybody check out. Thank you for joining me as well. I'm glad you've chosen to spend another Friday with me here on Chef Demoni, or perhaps it's your first Friday with me here on Chef Demoni, in which case I really do hope that you come back. If you're enjoying the show, please consider sharing it with a food-loving friend. Pass it on. They may enjoy it as well. And as always, I love to hear from you. Listeners to the show are a constant source of topic ideas and great guest suggestions. So if you happen to know of a chef or a lawyer or an anthropologist, or maybe you are a chef or a lawyer or an anthropologist, 
uh, that might be a good fit for Chefdemoni, please get in touch. You can do that through social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. You can send me a good old-fashioned email to graham at chefdemoni.com. I'd be delighted to hear from you with guest suggestions, or maybe you've got a topic idea for the show. Please do get in touch. All right, that is all for today. I'm Graham McLennan. I'll look forward to seeing you next Friday, right here on Chef Demoni.